We hope you enjoy listening to this weekly podcast from Lifeline Church. Find out more by visiting lifelinechurch.co.uk. So we are about to launch into a King series. This is episode one. Um, So what I'm going to do today is kind of outline a few things. We're going to talk about... Let's see if I can turn this on. on. Ah, there we go. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the series. How do we get from creation to to kings? And some key characters to, to look at and be aware of before we start. So about the series. Why do we want to do this series on kings? Well, we believe the Bible packs a punch. There's a lot in there. These aren't just stories from 3,000 plus years ago. They're still relevant for us today. And we're expecting God to speak to us through this. 20 years ago, this month, we started a King series. It took us two years to complete. That was partly because my my dad was doing the majority of the teaching and he was traveling quite a lot at the time. So I don't think it's going to take us that time, that amount of time. But if you might, you may remember that if you're of that maturity amongst us, that we were finding, we were teaching something on Sunday and we were finding how relevant that was for our day to day throughout the week. And it was incredible how we'd teach something and we saw the application fall straight into into line. And so we kind of want to capture some of that again. And there's a lot of people amongst us now that haven't necessarily grown up with these Bible stories. And so over the last couple of years, we've done lots of bouncing around from different, uh, different bits in the Bible. What I wanted to do is spend some time with us all gathering around one particular book for a period of time. So we're much more on a level playing field, able to really stink, stink our teeth in, sink our teeth into it. Um, and and be able to have those conversations and that journey together. So additional to what we're going to teach on a Sunday morning, we're going to do an accompanying podcast. So I've got a number of people that are involved uh, doing the study that is leading to the teaching notes. And so I'm going to hopefully grab those people together and take some time to talk about what the kind of the behind the scenes and the application that we see of this stuff. Part of what we're doing this podcast is answer questions that you guys submit. And so there is a link in the briefing to my email address. As you have questions, send send them through to us and we'll try and engage with them in this podcast that will go alongside. And hopefully this will give you something to kick around with your friends um, in any groups that you're in, things to talk about that we can explore together. So we're going to do a few episodes up until the summer and then we're going to take a break for the summer and then kick off again in September. We won't necessarily do it every week because we need to insert different things that we feel are relevant as and when, but this is going to kind of keep us together for a little while. Now, a word of warning when coming to study in the Bible. First of all, it's not a, though it does have historical facts, it isn't just a history book. It is the living word of God, and it therefore has the power to transform. Now, also be careful because it's not sanitized, there's some pretty dark stuff, and we're going to find that pretty soon. It's not really there for your, your approval. It's not there to suit our cultural disposition. 
every culture and every generation that has existed has been offended by something in the Bible. I hope you will also be offended at something that we read and see because there's something about us being realigned to what God is saying to us. And just because the Bible reports something doesn't mean it condones everything that is there. So just because it's not specifically denounced does not mean that God was happy with what what actually happened. Don't expect to find a hero. There weren't many heroes in the Bible. In fact, if you look at the Bible to think, who am I meant to copy? You will be quite disappointed at the characters that you see. Because the real story of the Bible is the faithfulness of God to stick by faithless humans. So God is the hero. That's that's who we have to look to in this. We also won't explore every single bunny trail. I remember studying once with a guy called Davy Cop, and I went to his his office, which was like a library. It had bookshelf covering bookshelves covering every single wall, filled with books that were all commenting on the Bible. That one book has inspired all of these other books. There are many different bunny trails that we can go down. We don't have a hope of exploring them all. So we're trying not just to do an isolated study of kings, but we're trying to work out what is God saying to this particular people at this particular time. So we take that stuff in context. So there you go. That's a little bit about the series. Now, how do we arrive at kings? Now, I've got a little prezi for us on this one. It's a different type of presentation. So... I wanted to just get us a bit into context. How do we get... Oh, that's gone a bit faster than I wanted to. Right. So here are the key steps in the journey to get, to, get us to where we are. So this is a bit of the, the history lesson for today. So if you didn't like history, I'm very sorry. That's the next little section. But hopefully you're, it will help run a thread through what we're getting to. So... The first book of the Bible, we open it with Genesis and creation. So let's have a little look at creation. So God made everything. If you claim to be the best artist, no one will ever know that you're actually telling the truth unless you create something. And then they can look at what you've created and think, wow, you are the best artist That's where I need to go to if I want to know what an artist should be like. So God created stuff. He started expressing himself through his creation. He made the heavens, the earth, all the planets, these things that we gaze at and write poems about. He created it. He thought it up. All animals, all creepy creepy things, everything, he worked on that. And then he made humanity. And he created man and woman and he invited them into a relationship that he already had as the three expressions of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There was already a community in God right before anything was created. So he created mankind and he said, come be part of this community. That's God's heart and that runs across the whole of the Bible. His desire to invite us into communion with him. So God created what he did to display what he's like. The Bible talks about that for his glory. Glory is when your attributes are on display. 
So God wanted to show everyone what he's like because he is the answer to everything. And I've talked about this before. If, if you're out at a, a restaurant with a friend that's a doctor and then someone on the next table starts choking and, and their loved ones scream, help, is someone here a doctor? And your friend says, oh, I, I don't want to big myself up. No, I don't. I, I, any, anyone could do this. No, that, that's not modesty. That's malpractice. If you are the answer to what everyone's looking for, you have to show that. And that's what God does. By displaying his glory, he's saying, you can't live without me. I am here, and my arms are open to you. So he created everything to say, I'm here. Come to me. And he created mankind in his image because he wanted to show the world what he's like. So he put that into mankind to reflect what he's like. And then he said, multiply and fill the whole earth. The result of that is little images of God are everywhere. So everywhere you look, you're pointed back to what God is like. It talks a number of times in the scripture that, that, that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God like the waters the sea. So you know the sea because it's water. So you would know earth because it's full of God's glory. You don't see that when you look around today, but that was the intention. So the next bit we get in Genesis is the fall. So... Adam and Eve chose to eat of the tree that they were told not to. It wasn't just picking the wrong fruit from the greengrocer. That was a deliberate act to reject God's invitation to community, reject God's rulership over their lives. It was their decision to be able to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. It entered sin into the world that corrupted our ability to reflect his image we became warped in our ability to show what he's like. We couldn't reflect him properly. But no sooner had man fallen that the promise was made that a seed of the woman, so someone born of mankind, would crush the serpent that deceived Adam and Eve at the beginning, would crush the serpent's head, and the serpent would bruise him on the heel. There's a promise of salvation, redemption, and rescue that came right there, right in the third chapter of Genesis. So, things go downhill pretty quick after sin. Yeah, the second generation, so Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel, they start, and Cain murders Abel, right at the beginning. That's how quick. And it goes downhill from there pretty fast, to the point that God's got to start again. He couldn't, live, he couldn't let this level of depravity exist in his world. So he washes it away, and that's where we get the story of Noah and the flood. And he starts again. And instead of now trying to work through all of mankind, he picks one person. He picks Abraham, and he says, I'm going to work through you and your family to show and model this is how mankind can relate to God. But his intention was, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm putting my invitation through you. I'm going to work with you, and I'm committing to work with you. So then Abraham, we see the story of Isaac, 
You might recognize that picture where God, was at, God actually told um, Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. So that's all in Genesis. He tells him not to. Um, then this is the story of, of Isaac as an old man being deceived by one of his sons, Jacob. And Jacob actually has his name changed to Israel. That's the first time we see Israel. Then Israel has, or Jacob, has 12 sons, and we get to begin to see, ah, children of Israel. So now whenever you see the Bible talk about children of Israel, this is we're beginning to move into the family that he promised to work with. The, last, the second to last son was Joseph. Joseph was the one that ended up in Egypt during a famine and managed to create a system to save that whole region by providing food. And the whole of Israel's family moved into Egypt. So that's how we get to the end of Exodus. Uh, sorry, end of Genesis. Takes us to, to Exodus. Exodus, we also get, because it's the story of Moses, we get Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all in this kind of section. So... 400 years after Joseph, Israel has, has grown into a big people group. And you've got, now got a, um, a pharaoh that doesn't know Joseph, who's now in, in charge. And they end up enslaving all of Israel within Egypt. And so God sends, elects Moses by the story of the burning bush to say, you're going to go and set my people free. So he goes to Pharaoh, God gives him all, does all of these signs called plagues as a way of showing God means business now about liberating his people. Eventually, he says, yes, Moses leads the people out, including the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, once he's got his people, these is, again, Abraham's sons, all into um, the wilderness, God gives a couple more invitations First, he gives the invitation by descending on Mount Sinai, and he's saying, I want you to know that you are my people and I am your God. He's inviting them into that covenant again. The people reject it. They say, no, we're too afraid to come close to God. Let Moses just be our intermediary for us. So they reject the invitation. You also get the opportunity where he's saying, okay, now I'm going to establish you in the land that I promised, the land called Canaan, which is referred to as the promised land. And so they send out some, some spies to see the land, and the 12, tribes come, uh, 12 spies come back. Two of them say, yes, we can do it. The other 10 say, no, no, the giants in the land, we can't do it. And so the people reject the invitation to take the land and even threaten to stone Moses and the other leaders because of that. So, the focus then for the rest of that section is just raising up the next generation. Moses gives another speech to the children of those that were brought out of Egypt because all of that first generation that was in Egypt died out because they weren't willing to accept the invitation. So Moses raises up the next generation, takes them to the border, to the, the promised land, and then Moses dies. So we get to Joshua. So Joshua leads the next generation into the land. They cross the Jordan. They have the, the, the battle over Jericho. A whole bunch of different stories as they're beginning to take the land that they were promised. But crucially, they didn't take all of it. 
So, after Joshua, we're introduced to judges. Now, they're not the judges that sit behind a bar like we would know. They are mighty warriors that God raises up at different times. But because they didn't secure the land like they were told to do, it meant they were vulnerable to oppositions coming in. And because they didn't hold to the promises that they'd made to God, their sin allowed them to fall into oppression. So they would cry out to God, and God would raise up a mighty warrior to rescue them. Judges is a a really weird book, really crazy stuff. You see people like Deborah and her being a warrior prophet and, and judge leading people into battle. You get the story of Gideon in there. Even get Samson, who's one of the most despicable people in the world, but God still uses him in mighty ways. So, after Judges, the last judge that we hear is Samuel. He was the last leader. He was also uh, recognized as a prophet. During Samuel's reign, the people demand a king. They say, all these other countries around us, they've got a king. We don't want judges. We don't want God as our, as our leader. We want a, a proper judge, a, pro- a proper king. And we begin to move from a bunch of tribes to, to a nation, the nation of Israel. The first king we see is Saul. So I talked a bit about Saul the other, the other week. Saul's fascinating character. Right from his coronation, he, he hid from his own coronation. He did well right at the beginning. He had brought a big victory over the um, 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 Ammonites. But then after that, fear of man took over, and he actually started doing things that he was told not to do because he wanted to get people's approval. Samuel came and told him, now you can't do this. God's, God's going to reject you. And, so, and Saul actually grabs his robe and tears it in two as he's trying to stop him leaving. God t- uh, Samuel turns around to him and says, in the same way that you've torn my robe, God will tear the kingdom away from you. He's going to raise someone, up, someone else up. And so we see that someone else actually being David. And Saul became jealous and mad and tried to kill him. And eventually Saul falls on his own sword in battle at the end of the first book of Samuel. So overlapping with with Saul, we see David. So we know the the story of David and Goliath. He'd been anointed by, by Samuel, has some success here and in other battles. But because Saul went crazy, tried to kill him, he had to flee to the wilderness and he was living out out there, but he became a rallying point for all of these other men that were also outlaws of Saul. They became his mighty men. During that time, Saul was hunting him in the caves, and he went and he went to do a dump in the cave. And while he was there, David was able to slip, cut a bit of his robe off um, to show that I could have killed you, but I meant you no harm. David saw the return of the ark to, to the center of, of the leadership in Jerusalem. But not, and, and at that, just after that, God makes a promise with him, similar to he made with, um, with Abraham, that I'm going to keep one of your sons on the throne at all points. And that's where we begin to see this idea of 
the, the Messiah coming out of the line of David. And you see that Jesus was actually in David's uh, genealogy. But then this is where David really messes up. So he's on his rooftop and he spies um, this woman called Bathsheba who was bathing on a rooftop. He finds out who it was, discovers that she's the wife of one of his soldiers that is currently on the front line fighting for him. He calls her over. He has sex with her. He gets her pregnant. When he realizes she was pregnant, he calls back Uriah, her husband, from the front line in the hope that, she, that he will have sex with his own wife and then could pass the pregnancy off as his. But Uriah would refused to have sex with his own wife because he's saying, my brothers in arms are fighting. I can't be enjoying home life here while they're out fighting. So instead, David sends a message to his commander called Joab saying, leave him exposed on the battle line that he might be killed by the enemy. And that's what Joab ended up doing. So then after he died, David had Bathsheba come over um, and be his wife. But God was deeply upset with this. And the consequences of this was, the, and the, this word came through Nathan the prophet, the sword will never depart from your, from your family. You will always be at war because of what you've done. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring disaster on you. You slept with this woman in secret, but someone's going to take one of your wives and sleep with them in public. The son that has been born to you will die. And we begin to see the fulfillment of all these dreadful things. Ammon, who was David's firstborn son, rapes his half-sister called Tamar. David fails to confront this issue. So Absalom, David's third son, takes the responsibility on himself. And he, ha he invites Ammon... Ammon over for, for a feast and then has him murdered. Absalom then goes, flees to another nation and eventually he's, he's brought back. But not long after that, Absalom leads a coup against David. David flees Jerusalem and Absalom, to demonstrate that he's got total power, has sex with one of David's concubine on the roof of the palace in front of everyone to see it. Absalom then went out to battle. Now, this one's amusing. He's riding a mule, and his, he was running away from the enemy, and while he was on the mule, his hair got stuck in a tree. The mule went away, and he's hanging by his hair. Joab thrusts a spear through him. And that's the end of Absalom. David comes back to the kingdom. Not very sanitized, is it? This then takes us to kings. So we are realizing Israel as a nation has never been stronger. David is at the end of his life, and we are about to enter into the power struggle between the princes that are vying for succession. If you've ever seen House of Cards, this is where all that stuff comes from. So, in looking at all of this stuff, 
some themes that we see. God is still focused on his purpose, that all creation would glorify him, putting his attributes on display. He's still committed to the promise he made with Abraham, even though you see through what you've seen the desperate disaster that Abraham's sons get into, and yet God is still faithful to them. And he's expecting that this family will carry the seed that will crush the serpent's head. So, hopefully that's been helpful to understand how that stuff all fits together. This stuff will be be available for you if you ever want to look at it again. Right, if we can jump back to the PowerPoint. (coughs) Now, I want to give you a little heads up now on some of the key characters you're going to, you're going to be introduced to because the writer of Kings assumes you already know them. Okay, but it can be a little bit overwhelming. So here's kind of about nine characters I wanted to give you a quick um, heads up for. And these kind of feature in the first two chapters. So, David. So we know a lot about David already. He was the king at this time. He'd reigned for 40 years. He had eight wives, plus a whole bunch of concubines, and about 19 sons, give or take. He's pretty old at this point. This is Bathsheba. So she was originally, she was David's wife, she was originally married to Uriah, who David got her pregnant and had her husband murdered so that he could marry her. <coughs> her first son dies, but she has she is the mother of Solomon, whose spoiler will become the king. Um, God actually names him via the prophet who was the one that confronted David, which is quite significant. So that prophet was called Nathan. So Nathan um, was the prophet. So the prophet was there to serve the king, speak into the rulership of government through all of that period. So he was the one that God spoke through to say to David, you're not going to be the one that builds the temple, but I will make this promise that I will never leave your family. I will always love them. I will correct them when they need it. It was Nathan that confronted David on his sin with Bathsheba and what he did to Uriah. Adonijah. So... Adonijah is one of the princes. He was David's fourth son. And he was assuming he was next in line. Um, Let me just jump back on that one. So the first son was Amnon, Amnon, who was murdered by Absalom. The second son was Daniel. We don't hear anything more of him, so some commentators assume that he might have died at a young age. Absalom was the third son who was murdered by, um, was killed by Joab in battle. So fourth son thinking, okay, 
This is, this is going to be me. We're going to hear about him pretty soon when we start the teaching next week. Solomon. So he was another prince. I'm not quite sure what order he came in. The Bible kind of starts listing them in order, then gets bored and just said, here's a bunch of other ones. Um, so he was the son of Bathsheba. He's named by Nathan, and he eventually succeeds David as king. Joab is one of the most fascinating characters, I think, in the Bible. So you remember when David was on the run, all these guys kind of came to him while he was in the wilderness. Joab was one of those. He eventually became, becomes David's general. He was pretty ruthless. So he murdered Abner. Now, Abner was Saul's general. So while, the, while David was on the run and Saul and his Saul's men were hunting David, Abner was kind of the, the opposition uh, to Joab's position. Then after Saul died, Abner was working with one of Saul's sons, um, and trying to, to help him fight David. But Saul's son really upset Abner. So Abner came and started having peace talks with David. And he said, you know what? We, we could work this. I could bring all the nobles onto your side. And we could, we could bring you into your rightful role as king. But a, during a previous battle between Joab and Abner, Joab's brother had been chasing Abner, who was riding on a chariot. For some reason, this guy, Joab's brother, was super fast and was catching up with him and wouldn't leave him alone. So Abner says, stop chasing me, or I'll, I, I couldn't look at your brother if I have to kill you. But he doesn't stop. So he thrusts the butt end of the spear through Joab's brother and kills him. Joab doesn't take to this very well, and he harbors this, um, this bitterness towards Abner. So when he hears that David has been having these peace talks with Abner, he's saying, what are you doing? You had him in your hands, and you didn't, you didn't dispatch him. And David's saying, no, we're working on something here. So Joab goes and says, oh, Abner, let's, let's have a little conversation together. When he comes close to him, he kills him. He stabs him, and he takes out Abner. That really upset David, because David thought this was going to be the end of the war. But David couldn't do anything about it, because he's saying, Joab's got too much power. I can't sort this out right now. Store that in your brain, because that will be useful when you get, to get into kings. So as you heard, David conspired with Joab to kill Uriah. So he sent a letter to Joab through the hand of Uriah. So when Uriah wouldn't sleep with Bathsheba and went back to the front line, David said, oh, just take this letter for me and give it to Joab the general. Little did he know that he was handing his own death warrant over to, to Joab, who then obliged. It was actually Joab that brought Absalom back from hiding, or back from exile, to reconnect with David. And it was then actually 
Joab that killed Absalom in battle. Joab later murders Amasa, who David had put in charge over top because he wasn't happy with Joab, so he put this other guy up, up top as general, so then Joab murders him as well. He actually tried to dissuade David from doing this census, counting up all of his military. He said, God wouldn't want you to do that, but David overruled him, and David and the kingdom were punished because of that, which makes him a fascinating character. Was he a good guy? Was he a bad guy? Did he have any good bits, any bad bits? And finally, we see that in the beginning of Kings, when Adonijah declares himself as king, Joab joins him. Right, Abiathar and Zadok, or Zadok, they were the priests. Abiathar actually joins David while he's in hiding because Saul had murdered, had done a massacre of a whole bunch of priests. Abiathar was one of the ones that escaped and came and served David. And he served David while he was in the wilderness, and Zadok also appeared there. Um, And then once David ascended to the throne, they continued to serve him there. When David fled Jerusalem because of um, Absalom's uh, coup, he actually tried to bring the ark out towards David. And David said, no, no, I'm not going to use the ark as my good good luck charm. Leave the ark in Jerusalem, but go back and be a spy for me. And they were spies for, for David, letting him know what was going on. Abiathar decides to join Adonijah when he declares himself king. Uh, Zadok doesn't. Zadok uh, does not uh, join at that point. Benaiah. So another of the mighty men, so I guess he's kind of like a captain, definitely an officer in the army. Um, He did some pretty impressive things when you look at some of the mighty men. So he killed Moab's two mightiest warriors. They were giants. He took them both on. He went down into a pit on a snowy day to wrestle a lion. (laughs) I've heard it taught that war used to happen in the springtime. So if you want to keep your skills ready for battle, you've got to find something to do when it's snowing. And so he decided to wrestle a lion. So could be some, that was his gym. Oh yeah, sorry, he, the Moab, Moab's warriors that he killed weren't giants. The Egyptian was a giant and he killed him with the, with the Egyptian's own spear. So he was pretty badass. Um, he served under Joab. He had a particular group that he was responsible for and he chose not to join Adonijah. So, that was your history lesson. You are now all set up for episode two of the King's Study, which will be open in the book, and we'll begin to work through verse by verse and see what God says to us during that time. I was trying to think, what response do I offer you coming out of this? Um, I think God shows his faithfulness to remain by very unfaithful people. 
is not down to our ability to live up to what God wants. And that's something that I just give God thanks for. Thank you for not requiring perfection, because I've never lived up to that. But also what we have, what those guys didn't have, we have the indwelling of the Spirit of God that enables us to live how he calls us to live, not in order to get his love, but because we have his love. So if there's any response that I could think of, thank you, God, that you have been faithful and that you offer us something to live by today. And we can continue to be part of your purpose on earth, which is to display what you are like because you are the answer that this desperate dying world is looking for. James. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Lifeline Church. We hope this message has been an encouragement to you. We are a relational church with a passion to demonstrate God's love to one another and our surrounding community in real and practical ways. We believe that God has called us to have an impact on our families, our communities and our nation. We'd love to connect further with you, so please do visit our website at lifelinechurch.co.uk on Facebook, lifeline.church.uk or Twitter at Lifeline UK. Thank you.